What is up, everyone? This is the R4 Podcast, a podcast about reading, running, relationships, and reinvesting into community and what that means to me. As you can see in the title, I've got another special guest. Uh, This one is kind of a hybrid between an interview and a book review. So, the book, Scars and Stripes. Um, The book is a memoir of Tim Kennedy and Nick Palmashano assisted with writing the book. Uh, The book is great. We're going to talk more about this. But first, let's jump into the Rooney recap. This is just what's been going on with me, the fam, um, since the last podcast, you know. And and now we're about two weeks out from the last podcast, from the uh, September 11th podcast with Tommy O'Hare. Great episode, a lot of good information in there. Um, you know, I just, I'll throw this in the recap. I'm very thankful. I had a great conversation with them. We talked for probably 30 minutes on the front side of that podcast and 30 minutes on the back side. And it was just great catching up. Now, as far as uh, the rest of the recap, what's been going on? You know, I've talked about it before, took on a new job, um, left my previous employer, which was an insurance company doing property adjusting, um, to jump into manufacturing back into like this quality, uh, process improvement type of position. So I'm two weeks in at this point and I'm loving it. Uh, it's not for everyone. Continuous improvement or process improvement is not for everyone, but it is for me. So my, uh, bit of advice to anybody out there who's in a position where you're just not happy with whatever it is you're doing, your job or whatever, there's opportunities out there. You just have to go find it and you don't necessarily have to sacrifice, um, you know, pay or time or things like that. Like, I don't know, maybe I just got really lucky. That could be too, but always keep my ear to the ground and, uh, you know, really thankful for this new opportunity again, back in, back in manufacturing, working with metal and steel and putting stuff together and just super, super excited for it. Now, apart from that, you know, on the sports side, um, with the kids, only got one kid in sports. That's my daughter. She's doing soccer. Uh, not a whole lot to update there, you know, <laughs> a bunch of seven year olds playing soccer. Um, what else has been going on? My wife and I, we had our anniversary. So we've been married for 13 years as of September 18th. Um, you know, her and I went out to dinner, uh, had some kid-free time. That was really nice. Uh, we went to a steakhouse, you know, here in town. And I've been on, like, this uh, low-sugar, like, avoiding junk food kind of sugar diet. And I totally, uh, I was like, you know what? It's a, it's an anniversary. It's kind of a holiday. It's a celebration. Like, I'm getting cake and ice cream. And I got some type of, like, double chocolate cake with vanilla ice cream that had caramel and chocolate like drizzle on top of it and it was delicious and I didn't regret eating it at all and usually I get food regret so that's a big driver for me wanting to eat better no food regret not that time so yeah went out celebrated our anniversary um can't believe that it's been 13 years uh, that we've been married. Time goes so fast. So over the last 13 years, I mean, some big milestones, three different, uh, three kids. So we have three kids, three houses, 
purchased three different houses. We don't own three houses, but we're on our, our third. Had an apartment before the first house. Um, pets, deployments. I mean, it's, I don't know where the time has gone over the last 13 years. It's, it's kind of crazy, uh, but I'm loving it. And I, I look forward to the next 13, babe. So if you're listening, um, thank you. It's been an amazing 13 years plus. So what else? The recap. Current book. Reading uh, Vince Vargas's book, Light the Fuse. Um, he's already been on the podcast. You know, maybe we'll do a book review if we can make it happen. Uh, he's got another book coming out later this year that I want to read. And, uh, you know, I've got some feelers out there as well. I'm trying to touch base with some other authors whose book that I have or books that I've read um, to run back and do a, you know, just kind of a book review. So... There's some other ones that are kind of in the works and, you know, if the interview stuff keeps going the direction that it does, um, I'm, I'm not sure. I guess I don't know what that looks like. So we'll have to wait and see the interview stuff. I'm really thankful for it, especially thankful for the veteran community because they've pretty much shown up. You know, I was like when I started looking for, uh, for guests and started putting feelers out there. It's like the veteran community was the first one to show up. And I'm really not surprised by that because that's just the mentality. Um, and then, you know, kind of coincidentally, the other, the other, uh, community, and this goes into reinvesting into community, um, people that have been involved with nonprofits. Um, and, and some of them, like, I didn't even know they had nonprofits when they, uh, wanted to do the podcast or not wanted to do the podcast when I asked them to do the podcast. So that's also pretty exciting and it's really inspiring. Um, you know, giving back to the community. It's something I, you know, try to try to do as much as possible. Uh, I enjoy it giving to nonprofits and have some aspirations of, of my own to, uh, give back in my own unique way. So we'll wait and see how that all pans out. But yeah, so that's where we're at. New job, new book. Uh, yeah, let's go. So this, this next podcast or this next uh, interview, Nick Palmashano, um, thanks for doing it. And again, the veteran community, like you guys know how to show up. So let's get in the podcast. Let's go. All right. Thanks, Nick. All right, everyone. So our four podcasts, we got another guest on today. Um, very special guest, Nick Palmashano. He is a West Point graduate. He also runs Diesel Jack Media, uh, founder of Ranger Up, and just so many other things um, he's involved with. And I'm excited to have him on. He agreed to uh, come on and talk about Scars and Stripes. That was the last book I just read. And uh, we're going to go ahead and review the book a little bit and do, you know, some, some Q&A and some thought, thought process about this book. But... Before we, uh, before we get into the book, Nick, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Dude, I appreciate uh, you accepting my invite. And again, uh, just, just super grateful, um, not just for you doing the podcast, but all these other things that you're out doing. You know, and I, I talked to another veteran who I know you know, um, Vince Vargas, and I'm not, I'm not name dropping, but it's just a fact. He did the Great podcast. <laughs> What's that? He's a great man. He is as genuine as they come. It's one of the things that I love about that guy is he's the same dude now that he's a Hollywood star as he was when I first met him and he was trying to start a t-shirt company. 
literally the same guy, same values, family first. He's a good man. Yeah, one hell of a dude. And there's, I mean, from from me following both of you guys online, there's a lot of similarities um, between you two. And I, I think that's pretty cool. But uh, But anyways, you know, for me, I joined the military uh, in the Army Reserve in 2009. I've got a couple deployments overseas. Um, so, you know, prior to, prior to me joining or, you know, uh, however you want to word it, there were, there were guys like you and guys like him and, and many, many others. You mean old so, people? Old people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, you know, let's, let's talk about uh, you growing up, right? Prior, prior to joining the military, what was Nick doing? Um, I was born in Providence, Rhode Island. And when I was three years old, we moved to uh, Italy. My dad is Italian, uh, was born in Italy, American citizen, fought in Vietnam, and um, then uh, became a GS employee and had the opportunity to, to uh, run an office uh, in Naples, Italy. And so he took us there. And I grew up on the Italian economy, essentially thinking of myself as an Italian kid. I was, I was fluent in Italian then. I'm not anymore. Um, and I lived there until, uh, you know, middle school. And then we came back to the States, uh, moved about 45 minutes outside of Boston. And uh, basically, I got the shit kicked out of me every day for being the weird Italian kid. <laughs> and, uh, and that's what got me into martial arts. I wanted to do karate because I'm so old that Karate Kid 2 was like the hype back then. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I was like, karate's where it's at. I want to be able to karate these kids beating me up. But uh, karate was like 45 minutes away and judo was 15. So my mom put me in judo and I was super bummed about it, but it ended up being a blessing. So judo led to wrestling. Uh, wrestling led to a desire to do hard things, uh, you know, and uh, that's what led me to West Point and the rest is history. So with the, uh, you know, with your dad serving in the military, was that, did that influence you joining? So my dad is not, he is the exact opposite of a vet bro. Like the, opposite. Okay. Um, my dad, I did not know my dad served in the military until my brother and I, you know, as little kids were like rifling through stuff in the attic and we found my mom's hope chest and uh, opened it up and it's like, stacked with uh, a green beret, tiger stripes, and a, um, a plaque that has a green beret on it and says, um, you know, ALO, first group, special forces. So my dad was Air Force, and he was the liaison officer from the Air Force uh, to first group in Vietnam from, uh, I think it was 71 71 72 i think um and it's all on this plaque and i you know i asked my mom like hey what's this and that none of that meant anything to me you know sure. back then but you know she was like oh yeah your dad was special forces in vietnam and i was like what like literally <laughs> had never meant not like one of these guys that was like you know bro i'm this or i'm that and 
And like, it was, it was really cool because I can remember countless times where, you know, friends of friends were over and, you know, like the, the dad was like, you know, Marines or army or something in Vietnam. And they were like boasting about it. And my dad didn't even bring up his service. Like it was really cool. Um, so he just low key, like, you know, did not sell us on it at all. And then, um, when I took my SATs, I did pretty well. And the first college to reach out was West Point and I was not considering it. And my dad was like, you know, you should just go visit. And he's not a guy that weighed in on things. Like he, he's a big believer that like, you know, you, you turn, you turn 18, you go live your own life, no judgment. He doesn't care what you do as long as you, you know, do it as a good person. Um, but because he said, check it out, you know, I, I signed up to go check it out. And, uh, you know, and I, I had opportunity, like, I, I'm, you know, I, I you know, I, I, I visited MIT, I visited Brown, um, I visited Boston University, and, um, uh, and I had some other schools I was going to visit. And, uh, you know, all of those schools, like you visited, and they were like, we're the best, you come here, we're the best. And I went to West Point, and I followed this kid, Cadet Han, around. And Cadet Han had a real tough time. He was a great dude, but he, did, he didn't quite have it locked down yet, you know, which, which I was the same way, so I'm not throwing stones. But, sure, yeah. sure. But, you know, so he took a lot of shit. And the very last meal that I had there, you know, they're just, they're just giving Han, like, oh, a terrible time. He's having a rough meal. You know, he's, he's screwing up things, and they're, they're chewing him out. And this so how, how long had he had been? How long had he been doing this for? Were you um, like shadow, were you shadowing him? Or? Yeah, yeah. You you shadow a when you go visit you shadow a plebe. So this was back okay. then. There used to be like this thing called recognition, where you basically live as a you know a fourth class citizen uh, until <laughs> until March. So until like two months before your first year is over, and then you're recognized. And at that point, you're allowed to you know, call everybody by their first name. It's like the happiest day of your life. Okay. Um, my, my limited experience with, uh, and I'll, I'm just going to say ROTC, uh, because I, I did ROTC for one semester at uh, Creighton University or in Omaha. Mm -hmm. And I walked in as a, as a veteran. I had been in, already deployed once overseas. Um, and I walked in and there wasn't really like a, a mentorship thing. They probably do now. They probably did then even, but like I walked in and I had like already been overseas, meet another guy that was in the national guard. And it was like, immediately we were, um, we were the ones being shadowed, which was super weird. Cause it's like, I, this is day one. I just got here. <laughs> it's like some of the cadets yeah. have been there for like two or three years. So, so like, what's know, the army my, like? You know, my eldest son, it, um, went ROTC and he's an infantry officer now. Um, and he had a, a stellar ROTC program, like absolutely stellar. And then like, it varies. The thing about ROTC is like, there are some programs that are so substantial that they have, you know, meaningful training exercises and there's a rank structure and, you know, there are daily meetings. And then there are others that are very, you know, like piecemeal and, and put together. So, but, okay. 
but with with you know uh west point's very different you know it's a weird place and you come out weird you you either graduate as a very serious person for life or a perpetual child for life we really only come in those two flavors and uh and i i fall into the latter category i'll be 80 80 and still an idiot you know um So you're shadowing him. He's getting his ass handed to him. Yeah. And this upperclassman leans over to me and says, Hey, check it out. Uh, Don't come here unless, unless it's for you. Like don't come here for your mom, your dad, because you, you know, the kids in school will think it's cool because if you come here for any other reason, then you want to come serve your country. And this is meaningful for you. You're going to fucking fail. And, uh, and that was it, man. I was like, you know, don't, don't threaten me with a good time. <laughs> challenge uh, accepted. Okay. Challenge accepted. And so at that point, I switched gears from wanting to go to MIT to, to wanting to go to West Point. And I, I put all my eggs in that basket and, and worked relentlessly, you know, towards that goal. And, you know, one of the things that, that is weird about West Point, about getting in, is like you, you don't realize as a kid, like what's important and what's not important. So I thought everything was important and they have this weird physical test you have to do. Like one of the things, you know, it's like pull-ups and push-ups and uh, sure. a shuffle run. But then there's like one thing that is like, you have to get on your knees and throw a basketball as far as you can. And I'm five, eight, you know, uh, like, <laughs> a real, like a real five, eight. I'm not like actually five, seven. And I pretend to be five, eight. like I'm a legit five, eight. At my peak, I was five nine. I have shrunk because of <laughs> jumping rocks in old age. But you know, like five eight is where I'm at. And so at the time, you know, like I don't, you know, I've got regular size hands. I don't have basketball hands. And I try as as I might, the best I could do is the second quintile, which to me was like abject failure. So I was like the tippity top of the other four or five physical tests, but basketball throw, I was second quintile. And uh, like, I, I was sweating it so bad. And then later on, I would find out like the whole thing was just to figure out if you're, you know, completely ridiculous, you know, like, can you move your body? No one really yeah. cares how far you can throw the basketball. They just want to make sure it's not like 10 feet. Yeah. They're just checking but, out your mechanics. But in my mind, there was some other like elite kid that was just hucking basketballs left and right. And, he was going to take my spot and, you know, so. So, so fast forward from West Point, um, you join, you join the army. Yep. Uh, I most certainly, I don't want to gloss over, over the service. No, um, it's okay. It's okay. I, I say, I say it all the time. Like, you know, I, I was a standard issue infantry officer and, you know, I was, I was proud to deploy. I was, I was proud to, to be a platoon leader, especially, um, uh, you know, I got to do that twice, which was, which was a blast. If I could have been a platoon leader for life, I'd still be in, but, uh, I didn't want to be a major. Um, (laughs) and, uh, you know, but I didn't have, I didn't have that crazy moment, you know, where it's like, you know, that some of, some of my, you know, when your friends are like Tim Kennedy, Dakota Meyer, uh, you know, like my friends are like <laughs> literally living legends, heroes, you know, like my war stories are, are, you know, minimal by comparison. 
Like, so what, what years did you go and where did you go? So I was a Balkans guy. So everything that I did in the, you know, in the Middle East was, has been as a civilian. Okay. So I was the, you know, like I was one of the first units into Kosovo. And then, you know, we were on alert to go into, uh, you know, we thought we were going to Afghanistan. And then um, because we were, we were right off rotation, we got back from Kosovo in 2000 and we had just cycled up and uh, we were going to Afghanistan. And then they sent the 101st instead. Um, and it was like, all right, you know, we're not, we're not, we're actually not going anywhere. And so then I went on to my next unit and then of course they changed and my unit went to Iraq when that kicked off. Okay. So were you there in the, in the early years then 2003? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So from there, I mean, all right. So you did West Point, joined the army, deployed a couple times, uh, Duke university. Was that next? Yeah. So, so, you know, my last gig was at, um, my last gig was, uh, actually at RTB. So I was at uh, Ranger training brigade and, uh, I was, I went there as at first I was the AS three and then the major that, uh, was the S three took a one year gig in Iraq and um and i and the, the the battalion commander didn't want anybody to be like he didn't like any of the options he had for uh for his s3 that, that the army was offering so he just kicked me in that job so as like a jv captain i was the s3 over at fourth rtb okay and um that was an interesting it was interesting to be there after having been a ranger student to then be at ranger school very weird you know um but i enjoyed it you know i enjoyed i enjoyed doing it it was a great job i actually started liking the army again i had had a, a series of bosses that were not my favorite and i had excellent i had an excellent commander there too actually um and uh, i was on the fence you know so i uh I was, I had an SF packet in and I had uh, applications to business school and my, my ex-wife uh, was like, I support whatever you want to do, but I do not want to have kids while you're still in the military. So, you know, if you want kids, we need to, or that's on hold until you're out. And so, yeah, because those years, the rotate, and this was before I joined, because I joined in 09, yeah. but those those years, those early mid two thousands, like the rotations were constant. Yes. So, and then, and then the extensions, uh, I mean, that wasn't yeah. uncommon yeah. either. And I, I hear yeah. that a lot of people, you know, that mentored me and here's, um, through the, through the military. Here's the other thing. Like when I got out, it was a very interesting period of time. So it was this moment where Iraq wasn't bad yet. And a lot of people like there was no attention being paid to Afghanistan. And so a lot of people were under the impression, myself included, that the war was over and we were just in peacekeeping mode. And I had already done that. 
and I wasn't super excited to go, you know, man a post. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I couldn't have been more wrong. And, and, you know, that guilt would carry for years. So, you know, when I got into Duke, um, you know, I kind of kind of said, you know, hey, I want to have kids and I'd like to do that sooner rather than later. Let's, you know, let's do this. So went to Duke and then shortly thereafter um, is when everything started getting spicy. You know, I lost one of my favorite soldiers. One of my best friends got uh, wounded. Um, and, and that was like a really interesting period of my life because um, while I was at Duke, I was getting, you know, courted pretty aggressively by the agency um, to essentially go back and, and do, to do work. And I considered it uh, for, like, it was like a heavy consideration. I, you know, the, the, uh, the deputy director at the time um, was, you know, had been introduced to me by a friend that, you know, uh, was passionate about that kind of work. And, and I got regular calls about, you know, what the life might be like. And, um, and then the big thing was like, you know, the inclusion of my spouse into that world was critical. To yeah. Them, and I did not want that. So got a regular, you know, got, got, uh, went down the third, first, I thought I wanted to be an investment banker. Then I, I thought I wanted to be a consultant and ultimately the company that felt, uh, like the best fit was John Deere. Yeah. And you know, John Deere, just, uh, jump in on this. I'm from Iowa. Right. And as you probably are aware, John Deere is also from Iowa and around here, um, John Deere is like, I don't, I don't know what, what you want to compare it to it. Like everybody knows John Deere. Everybody loves John Deere. And then whoever's listening to this in Iowa, at least is going to find out that Nick used to work at John Deere and then quit. <laughs> so, so what, what, what led you to, uh, to leave John Deere? So John Deere was a very interesting experience for me. Um, I, I had a couple things happen there that were both good and bad, but I, I will start by saying I thought the company was excellent. I thought it was like truly a great company with great people. I was proud of the product. Um, but you know, I had, I had one very negative experience early on that turned into a positive experience. Um, so I, you know, the, the hardest thing to do when you're, when you're at business school is to get your internship. And, you know, I had a few offers, but John Deere was the one that I took. And I, so I was at, I was in Waterloo, Iowa for uh, three months and uh, doing this internship, you know, I thought I was crushing it. They gave, they actually put me in charge of all of the interns because the other interns were uh, like, engineering you know engineers um but like bachelor's degree and so they were like man you've got leadership experience so we're going to put you in charge of a few interns and and how old were you at this point 26 27 something like that okay know? so yeah you, you were a solid 
five years older. Probably maybe than, 28, than maybe 28. I can't, yeah, I, I'd say like in that ballpark, probably 27, 28. Cause I'm a year younger than everybody. Like I, I turned 21 two months before becoming a Lieutenant. So like I, I was, I was, yeah. So, so they, you know, they kind of put me in charge of the interns and, um, and the interns, like the interns that I had were like, not like I obviously I didn't assign, I didn't assign any of this, but the interns that I had were some, some pretty cute girls. And, um, so, you know, I went into full on mentorship mode, like, you know, here's, here's how you do this. Here's how you do that. And, and my background is in mechanical engineering. So like I understood their world very well, even though that wasn't the world that I was necessarily in. Sure. And, um, you know, so I had a really good relationship with, you know, essentially my, my mentees and, uh, you know, we all, we all got along great. Well, this, this, so I get called in uh, with like a month left on my internship and I get railroaded by like, there's the entire leadership team there. And they're like, you know, how could you do this? How could you do that? And I'm like, like, what are you talking about? Yeah. And they're like, yeah, you know, uh, we've got people that have said, you know, that you said all these terrible things about John Deere and about your boss and about this and about that. And like, I, I was so blindsided. I had tears in my eyes and I was like, you know, like all I can tell you, like, I just, I didn't even answer them. I turned to my boss. His name was Walt. And I just said, I'm just going to tell you this. Cause I don't know where any of this is coming from, but like, none of this is true. I have complete respect for you. I, you know, and I can't believe I'm in this situation. Like, I, I don't know what else to say. And so they were surprised because usually people, you know, people that are guilty react differently, apparently. Uh, <laughs> and so, Weird. <laughs> so they, like, they give me a minute and then they're like, you know, they bring me back in and they're like, you know, uh, we don't think you did this. Like, we have to launch, you know, we have to launch an investigation. And I went, they're like, why don't you take the rest of the day off? So I, I went back and, uh, and I did, the more I thought about it, the more pissed I got. And I actually, I actually resigned. So I came back in the next day. I, I went to the, the plant manager's uh, desk and I dropped off a letter on his desk that was a pretty, pretty rough uh, resignation letter on the organization. Like I was fucking done. Uh, I was pissed and uh, the guy called me and was like, Hey, can we talk for a minute? And, uh, and I was like, you know, I was locked in. I was like, I don't give a fuck. And he apologized and he was like, I was completely wrong. There's no way that I should have believed, you know, a person without doing any investigation, without giving you the benefit of the doubt. Like, I know better than this. It was just easy. It was easy to believe that the, that the kid from Duke, uh, you know, would be arrogant and cocky and, 
that is completely on me. That's my stereotype. That's my fault. Like, I hope you'll give us a second chance. And I, I had never had a leader do that. Like leaders are usually like, you know, the deal, you know, you double down yeah, yeah. And, and, and that whole shit. So you're in a place of authority. So you're right. So you're right. And so I was yeah. like, you know what, like I'll stick around. And any, what ended up happening is there was one guy married dude that was in love with one of my interns and he took the fact that you know she and I had a good relationship as like I was sleeping with her and he was jealous which wasn't the case like I I went a hundred percent in army like these are my subordinates. I need to give them the best opportunity. Like we still have a good relationship now, you know, me and, and both of the, the women that I worked with on a day-to-day -day basis. And um, so that like, but that, that, even though like it was, they were awesome about it. I kind of always kept in the back of my head that this organization could drop me in a second for any reason. So yeah. That's that a scary thought. It's a scary thought, right? Because I, I did nothing but give them my best. So anyway, yep. you know, they, they hire me full time. And, um, and my first gig with Deer was um, uh, doing corporate brand licensing. And so that was, you know, hats and T-shirts and toys and uh, portable powered equipment. And I, I worked for, I was kind of like the two IC in a way, but it was a very egalitarian group. Uh, I worked for this guy, um, Jeff and, you know, Jeff was, was close to retirement and he wanted me to kind of like lean forward and, and, you know, essentially do a lot of what he should do so that I could learn it and, you know, get ready for my next job. So, I got to be extremely hands-on and growing that business. And um, the big thing that I was involved in more than anything was apparel. And when, when I came on, they had just hired uh, this woman, Molly, who was a uh, Molly Reddish, who was a, a apparel expert. Um, and then, you know, my, I'd say Molly in many ways uh, mentored me. And also this guy, Dean Hamke, um, they they were they were pretty stellar people are pretty okay and so, and so deer actually got you into apparel for for a full-time job yeah is that what i got okay yeah. okay so, I'm, in, I'm interested we, to see how this roadmap goes <laughs> yeah when we took over um so when molly came on you know deer was doing like i mean a pittance, like, I don't know, 9 million or 14 million a year in apparel. And, um, so Dean is a, Dean was a, uh, he had been an entrepreneur before, before deer. And, um, like he and I just did a lot of, like, we just tried a lot of weird shit. So like Dean was like, let's just start ha sending hats to people. And, you know, so we were like brainstorming who we can send John Deere hats to and John Deere t-shirts and Ashton Kutcher ends up wearing a deer hat. <laughs> on okay. And all of a sudden, you know, John Deere starts blowing the fuck up. Yeah. And then, um, but one of the things that happened there was like a, another reminder of why 
I, I knew it wasn't forever. Um, you know, I don't know if you remember the David Letterman show, you know, David Letterman was, was a huge time comedian for years. Yes. I do remember David Letterman Uh, almost before my time, but I do remember David Letterman. (laughs) So he was huge. And, and he had this whole shtick where, you know, if a company, uh, if a company donated something to kids, then, you know, he would show them on their, on his, uh, on his show. Well, so I wrote, I sent like $2,000 worth of John Deere toys to David Letterman's office, um, along with this triple XL t-shirt for his, for this, he had this dude that dressed up in a bear costume every show to wear. And, uh, and he did. And, um, like it happened, he featured John Deere toys and he was like, man, these guys donated a ton to, to this children's hospital. And, uh, and it became like, you know, our, our toy sales went up and it was a big deal. Uh, except I didn't ask any permission for that. Okay. So that, that was just organic. That's something you kind of came up with. Yeah, I just, like, yeah, I just did. I just wrote this letter. And um, anyway, long story short, <laughs> I got in trouble. And the, the, the VP that's in charge of PR, I won't say rip me a new one because in, in a corporation like Deer, you don't really get ripped the way that you would in like a law firm or something. But sure. it was it was made known to me that it was unappreciated. And so, like, you know, on the one hand, in my eyes, I'm like, man, I just added, you know, probably a million dollars or more of value. Yeah, because uh, the natural response from but, from someone who's doing like what you're saying is like, well, let's look at the quarterly report when it comes out next. Well, but, but, next and, but that's the problem, though, is and and and. You know, this this woman was right, though, objectively speaking, I had, you know, because I, I called my dad. I'm like, man, this happened. And he was like, well, look at it from her position. John Deere is a 30 billion dollar company. You know, who cares if you make a couple million dollars on toys if you had written something that had injured the company? And, yeah. And, you know, what if, you know, what if you had written something that was misogynist or you had written something that like, you know, you might think it's funny, but humor is very borderline. Like, so, um, you know, it, it just became a, you know, like I was like, they're right. And, and when I realized that, you know, this woman was right, I had to accept the fact that like what I'm really good at would never truly be appreciated in the organization, even though they promoted me twice. Uh, Yeah. And so in the back of my head was I need to do something else so I can at least get a creative outlet. And so, you know, at the time, um, Ranger Up, I I say, I tell people this all the time, Ranger Up started out of guilt. I, I did not have a grand plan to like, become a big t-shirt company um i I didn't none of this was none of this was like important to me i just wanted to do something that reconnected me with the community and um and that's how it started and it started as a hobby because at this point i still wasn't sure that i was an entrepreneur i was like well i've got this great job you know, no, nobody in my family had made as much money as I was making, you know, as essentially, you know, I don't know what I was, 29, 30 or whatever. Uh, sure. Nobody had made that much money. You know, I, I was, my bonus was like, 
you know, 80, 100 grand. I mean, it was like, it was ridiculous. And, um, you know, I, I was like, well, I, you know, let me just do this on the side. And so I did. And, you know, and then I started getting messages from Iraq and Afghanistan and people saying, man, this is like, this made my day. Like, I needed this. The story was great. The, the T-shirts are great. You know, and it, it started to kind of turn into a thing. Um, it got to the point where my, you know, my business partner. Um, so, you know, originally started the company with one guy. Uh, and then, you know, it, it turned into kind of like a, a uh, uh, very quickly turned into a group of, of Rangers and, and SF guys from various walks of life. So Tom Amenta was a, was a second group guy, our second battalion guy. Uh, um, John Tackett's a, a third battalion guy, you know, Tim Kennedy's a seventh group guy and, and Kelly Krigger was a first group guy. And, uh, and that was like, that's, that's how Ranger Up really started is, you know, the, they all kind of threw in and, uh, and then, you know, once they threw in, we had a, enough money to kind of get a warehouse and, and move everything out of the apartment that it was running out of. And, um, that was, you know, that was the beginning of it. And then, you know, we had, a like, a, you know, over a decade of just kind of nonstop growth and, and grew that into a, you know, an eight figure company. It was, a, yeah. And, and I, and I know in this book, in the book, Scars and Stripes, uh, you guys have talked about Ranger Up and one of the, uh, fight for the troops events. Yep. And and correct me if I'm misquoting this, but like, did, did you just kind of show up on, unex, not unexpectedly, but you just showed up with like a bunch of a gear and, and apparel, right? Well, it wasn't, it wasn't quite like that, right? By the time fight for the troops happened, that was 2009, 2010. I can't remember exactly now, but um, you know, we were that we were three years in something like that maybe two and a half years in. So we actually, you know, we were already invested in um, like combative. So Ranger Up was the first sponsor of the Army Combatives Tournament ever. So at, like everybody that competed at Army, in the Army Combatives Tournament the first few years got Ranger Up t-shirts, like everybody. Okay. And, and so, you know, when they were throwing Fight for the Troops at Bragg, um we threw the after party you know and, and we had a we had this you know a big after party vip area and um like it was wild you know it, those were like the heady days of like man we're doing it we're growing this business and you know tim you know at various points we thought he was going to be back in time and he was going to fight on the card and um you know and then, but then like, while he was overseas, um, you know, kind of our writing relationship began because like he would write these journals about how he was feeling and I would edit them and, and, you know, turn them into blog posts and, uh, or he would call me, you know, between missions and say like, man, this just happened, you know, here's how I'm feeling, here's what's going on. And I turned those into blog posts and, and this was like the height of mill blogs. And okay. so, you know, you can still find it like, uh, you know, t it's like tales from Afghanistan or something, but, you know, Tim, 
Tim put out these these blogs while he was deployed that got posted on you know the big MMA sites. Um, and so and, you know, and being on being on the receiving end. So you, you're stateside. Tim's uh, I'm. I don't know if you would have been in Iraq or Afghanistan on, on so these. So he's in uh, Afghanistan for this one. Okay. And then I'm not going to spoil anything in the book, but Afghanistan was pretty intense for him. Afghanistan. Uh, he, was a di- he came back different from Afghanistan. Yeah. So what was it like being on the receiving end of those messages before they go to blog post? Like, what was it like reading those coming it's, from him? It, yeah, it's it's tough, man. You know, like again, um, you know, one of the things that I've 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 given myself like a, a break off of feeling terrible about this. But one of the things that's going to happen to you, and and this is true for everybody, and I didn't realize it at the time, is like whether you never deployed, whether you deployed once or twice, or whether you deployed, you know, fourteen, fifteen times. Um, you will feel guilt when your friends are doing something and you're not there anymore. Sure. And like, I still feel it now, even though I've been out forever. And, um, and so, you know, to have a close friend going through what he was going through and, uh, you know, and I'm sitting here planning like an after party for a UFC fight. It's, it's tough, but I also, I also, at that point, he'd yeah. already been—he'd already been in the UFC or at least Strike Force at that point, right? Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in a way, yeah. I, I'm just trying to digest this um, through my own mind, you know, like being being in your shoes. Like, okay, my my buddy's overseas. I'm planning this big event for essentially his what is his dream job. Yep. And he is literally living through hell right now. Yes. Yeah, that would be tough. That'd be tough. It, yeah, it was, it was super tough, especially because, you know, I, you know, when Tim got back from Iraq, which was his first deployment, he was fine. Like straight up, like legitimately, he was not, and I'm not just saying this, it's not like, he's not a good enough actor to uh, <laughs> pretend to, like, he was he was like happy to be back. He was like, you know, I'll, I can't wait to go again. I, you know, um, you know, Ranger School was like a pain in the ass. He didn't feel like he should have to go, but you know, he had to go to Ranger School, and like he was, he was piss vinegar arrogance, like a lot of fun to be around. Like you know, um, he he was a fun guy, cocky as hell. I mean, just fucking cocky as hell, <laughs> and. Um, He did not come back that way from Afghanistan. He was like, like literally a different human being came back from Afghanistan. So you guys had, well, was it kind of a mutual agreement to make these into blog posts then? Or how did that transpire? I have a, I have a habit and I've always had this habit of, um, even when I'm going through bad shit, I have a tendency to put my energy in other people. It's the way I'm built. Like they call us helpers or whatever. Um, And so, you know, when I met Tim, 
he had no marketing. He had no concept of like how to put himself in front of other people. He, um, he was a very skilled fighter, a very smart guy that people, you know, that people did not think was, was as smart as he is, um, and had a plan. And so like, you know, I, I instantly liked him. Um, I can't answer whether he liked me or not, but uh, <laughs> in the book, he's made some references to officers. I'll, I'll put that out there, but <laughs> yeah, he doesn't like officers in general terms. He doesn't like officers. Yeah. That's, but that's I, I feel like uh, you're, you're probably held in, in, in pretty, obviously you are, you, you mean you, you offered the author the book. Um, so obviously you're in high regard, but anyways. So, um, so, you know, I started helping him, you know, and, um, I started coming up with ways that we could, you know, cause he, he, you know, there was no one else that was in the military that was fighting at the level that he was at, you know, Brian Stan would come up, um, you know, a little later and Brian is a friend of both of ours. He's a stellar human being. Um, but you know, it was just Tim for a while and then it was Tim and Brian and, um, and there were other guys that were kind of in our, our friend group that knocked on the door of the same success that Tim and Brian had. Uh, like Andy Chappelle, I still to this day think he could have been a UFC champion, but, you know, the military and life had different plans. Uh, Damian Stelly, you know, he's another guy that was, that was in the mix and he got his, uh, he got his orbital bone broken uh, in a fight in, um, against, uh, gosh, I'm blanking on his name right now, but just a straight assassin out of Bellator. And after he had his face broken, his wife kind of put the kibosh on him fighting anymore. Like, so there were guys in the mix, but Tim, Tim was really the only guy for a while that was at that elite status and nobody knew who he was. And so I kind of set out to make sure that people did. So, you know, I made, I started making funny videos with him, um, which nobody in MMA was doing at the time. Everything was like over the top, tough guy, like, you know, bullshit. And we started making these funny videos that started getting really popular. And it culminated with Michael Bisbing. That was the, that was the pinnacle. <laughs> we, we went after Michael Bisbing for years. Um, in anticipation of the second that like Tim was in the UFC, cause it was inevitable. He was going to end up there that they could set up that fight. And like, I put a lot of energy into making sure Michael Bisping hated us. And it, it, didn't start that way. it started with, you know, one of our sponsored fighters and a good friend of ours who, who was a Cav scout back in the day, uh, Jorge Rivera. Um, you know, Jorge Rivera fought Michael Bisbing and he had some personal stuff going on at the same time, which is, you know, no one's business, but his, but mentally, like he had just won four fights in a row and he had the Bisbing fight and it would fight for him. Like, you know, I, I would say, you know, seven out of 10 times he beats Bisbing, but, um, you know, Bisbing illegally need him in the face while he was on all fours. And yeah. the, the doctor, pre, you know, essentially pressured him to continue, which obviously that's not what a doctor should be doing. Uh, and George is such a warrior. He's not going to quit. So he, you know, if, if we could have thrown in the towel, we would have, cause he wasn't even, he was in a different world. 
and he still said, I'll continue. And then Bisbing, you know, knocks, you know, finishes the fight, so to speak. Uh, yeah. TKO. Um, it was such a bullshit win. And then the guy just went on and on and on about how, you know, how he you know, talked all this shit. Now we had talked shit up to the point. So don't get me wrong. Like him talking shit for a moment and, and being done with it. But like he threw some accusations at George at, you know, that were so far off base and so unnecessary after winning the fight, especially winning it in the, the bullshit way that he won it. That, uh, you know, I took it personally, Tim took it personally and uh, the, actually, the only person that got over it real quick was it was George. Was well, George? Poor Rivera. <laughs> Rivera. He's such a good dude. He was just like, you know, shit happens. I lost the fight. Like, who? You know, let's move on. You know, and you know, the Italian uh, in me is like, or <laughs> <laughs> we could commit yeah. to a multi-year assault on this man's character until he takes the fight. <laughs> you know. And so every well, time Bisbing had a fight, we made a video supporting his opponent. Um, and then when Tim, you know, Tim went into the UFC, he beats uh, Hodger Gracie, which was a huge deal. Um, and then the next obvious fight was Michael Bisbing. And we got that fight in Canada. And Tim beat the absolute shit out of him. And it was one of the happiest nights of my entire life. Yeah, and that, according to the book, and, and much like you're saying, like that was a – um just an adventure to to try to get that fight lined up it, it wasn't we worked so hard it, to get that fight yeah it wasn't something that the the ufc had picked um had picked them to and then you guys you know put on a, a show something like you know like a conor mcgregor would do now with all the theatrics yeah like this was way before the fight was we, even we were theatrical happening. before anyone was doing it well just like generally speaking uh with theatrics, right? From the, from the veteran community. And I don't want to say, I don't know, often, often imitated, but never emulated. Like you and, and your group really uh, pioneered like that veteran entrepreneur influencer, um, you know, and I, I don't want to throw a bunch of wrong names at it. No, no, no. Know, I mean, but, yeah. So, but yeah. So I tell everybody I'm a gen one influencer. You know, like they're all better at it now. They're better looking. They're, you know, like it's all, it's very different now, but, but yeah, we were just trying to amuse the community. And and you guys do, I mean, you, I say you guys, I, I know you have a team of people that you work with. So I, I also want to give them credit when I say you guys, but uh, like you do a, a great job of balancing humor, humor, dark humor, theatrics and you know like preserving history all at the same time and, and it does it shows in this book um and through other things that you do whether it's your podcast or some of the other stuff that you do um i mean dark humor and or not say dark humor but humor uh and preserving history like you do a great job at it so what go when you're when you're writing a book like how do you uh how do you calculate, like, how do I make this to where people know that, you know, whether it's Tim or Nick or whoever, like, there's going to be that, that humor side of it, but I also want to be serious. Like what goes into that um, when you're well, so planning I, out? The 
things. I, I honestly just, I put myself into the position. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, my fourth day in Kosovo, um, we were driving down, you know, down a street and, uh, and up Armored Humvee and uh, we had a bunch of AK fire come our way and I was as green of a lieutenant. I mean, I had been out of ranger school for maybe like a month. You know, I was, or uh, that's not, that's not fair. Probably six months. Uh, and so the only thing in my head was, you know, run at, run to the sound of the guns. And so I, I, I literally do like a combat roll out of the Humvee and I, start, oh, Jesus. Okay. and I start running at, you know, the direction that the gunfire over where we saw the flashes. Right. And I see these, these two guys running with AKs and they run into this house and I, I am so fired up and I've, I'm guns up and I'm ready to start. Like I see a shadow move in the window and I'm ready to like literally safe is off finger is, is, you know, starting to apply pressure. And I stop because something in the back of my head is like, no, 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 no. And then I remember that this is a house that um, is essentially being used as a de facto orphanage for, you know, the Serbs that died during, you know, this, this, this battle, the kids are like in this house. Okay. And what these guys did is they actually weren't even trying to really engage with us. They wanted to, they, they, they put rounds over the front of the Humvee and, um, and they, they ran in the front door, ran out the back door, dropped the guns. We, we, we had a, a Bradley that was kind of doing overwatch that followed them all the way to where they actually lived. And we were able to like, you know, arrest them later or whatever. But what these guys actually wanted was they wanted us to light up that house and it just to be terrible press for, for America. Yeah. That's just feeding the propaganda machine. And so I was... I was a millisecond away from making a terrible decision that could have potentially injured or killed children. And so when it came time to, you know, to write Tim's book and he has a situation that's very similar to that, you know, much worse, there was a gun in the window, you know, shooting at him and his friends and he took out that gun with a grenade. Yeah. Well, he had no way of knowing there were kids in that room. Yeah. And that, that's part of the book, you know, so when you, when but, you see a guy I, like, just, like to him the, just to finish. Oh the yeah. Talk, go ahead. Go ahead. It's very easy for me to imagine that situation because I came close to it in its own way. And so when I'm writing that, I just remembered my emotions that I had to deal with later thinking I almost became the bad guy. I didn't do anything necessarily wrong, but like, man, I was almost the bad guy. And this is a, you know, and I, I think about it now, now that I'm old and I think like, man, I was a young kid with all this responsibility, you know? And so, you know, Tim was only a little bit older when he was out there doing this stuff. And, you know, we put a lot on people and we expect perfection in judgment and even when you are perfect in judgment, you know, because Tim, uh, I'll take it, you know, him and his friends, everyone, I'll, they did the right thing. There was a PK machine gun shooting up SF guys, 
you got to yeah. take out the gun. The fact that the bad guys had kids in the room doesn't change that, you know, but you still got to live with it. So whenever I'm writing, regardless of what it is, I try to find a similar moment in my life. And I try to put, even if I don't have that moment, I try to imagine what it would feel like if I was in this moment and I try to find that emotion. Um, and that, that's how, that's my, that's my methodology. I don't know how other people do it, but that's, that's my methodology. Sure. And the, yeah, I mean, the, whatever situation it is, whether it was, you know, referring to the book with the, with the grenade story or, or with yours in Kosovo, um, just being a, a, a young, a young uh, service member with a lot of responsibility, um, you know, pretty much plucked, plucked out of the civilian world and dropped over in another country. And you've got all this pressure on you and you've been trained, you know, to, you know, re whether it's react to contact or, yep. or break contact, you know, whatever, whatever your job is and determines you know, like what you do, but uh, just the, the responsibility that we put on, on young service members is it's a, it's a lot. It, it truly is. And uh, just to go on a military rant, I mean, it's a testament to how resilient, you know, our, our uh, machine of a military the military machine is because we can take people out of the civilian world and, and turn them into just outstanding people. Um, and, and during that time, while a lot of people are in the military, you know, uh, they're, they're kind of put on a pedestal. Um, I don't, I don't mean that in like a bad or disparaging way, but everybody, mostly everybody has a, a pretty good respect for the military. And then when they, when they get out of the military or come off of deployment, um, it's, and I talked to somebody else about this yesterday, right? People get into a weird funk when they leave the service. You talked about it, um, after leaving the service and, and getting, you know, back kind of involved with Ranger up and, and whatnot, and, and, and leading up to all these other things, writing books. So, I mean, like getting back involved for you, was that, uh, a pretty key thing for like, say mental, like your mental health? So, you know, one, it was key for me to be doing something I thought was meaningful for my mental health. So like, I don't consider myself, you know, it wasn't like I need to get back in the military or anything like that, but cause I, I, you know, I have a, I have adjusted pretty well to being a civilian. I don't run around and, you know, and, and talk about the military to, you know, the people in my community or anything like that. Like, it, you know, I'm a dad to, to, to my kids, friends, I'm, I'm a dad, you know, like I'm not like in the military, this, that, and the other thing. But, but one thing that I, I tell people all the time is, you know, when you get out, you're going to immediately, I don't care what your situation is, you lose tribe and you lose purpose. And if you don't find those things, you're going to have mental challenges. They don't have, it doesn't have to, you know, you, you, you think back to the, your platoon, your company, whatever. And like, you're like, man, some of these guys are idiots, but all those idiots are on your team. Like somebody gets divorced, everybody rallies around them. Somebody doesn't have money. Everybody rallies around them. Somebody makes a stupid mistake. Yeah. They might get smoked. They might get crushed. They might have to they might get put through a bad time, but everyone still is rallying around them, trying to get them to a good place. 
yeah that, that isn't that doesn't exist in the civilian world um and so you know you lose that tribe and then you know we all had the purpose of defending the country you're never going to have a, a greater purpose in your entire life and so you know you have to find new purpose and it's not easy to find that purpose sometimes um and so like i think of myself i had the best situation possible like Nobody should feel bad for the guy that got out, went to Duke, and then made a bunch of money. Nobody, right? Like every, you know, you you would roll your eyes if I started complaining. Nevertheless, never felt more lonely. Never felt like my life was less meaningful. Uh, never felt more unhappy. And so, you know, what I learned from that is I am not driven by money. And I am driven by purpose and I need to have a purpose. And so at first, the purpose was just, I need to do something creative and I need to reconnect. Um, and now I know that, you know, my favorite thing to do is to be a storyteller. You know, I like to speak. I like to, uh, I like to write. I like to make film. Um, and I like to tell stories about, you know, people that I, that I admire, find impressive, find interesting. Um, and it all comes from, you know, I, I think, I think the best writers are people that have suffered and have a lot of empathy because it's easy to understand how people get to both the good and the bad in their lives. And it's easy to put it to paper. And so that's what I, that's what I try to do. You know, but to return to your question ages ago, right? So where, how do you, how do you look at these dark moments and tell, you know, tell them, uh, you know, talk about how dark they are, but then, then make jokes. So that, you know, that same, you know, ambush scenario that I told you about in Kosovo, right? So like in the direct aftermath, you know, I'm talking about like 30 seconds after, you know, when we, we kind of had control of everything. You know, uh, my guys, you know, that were out, there were, let's say there were eight of us total, uh, and, and everything had gone wrong by the way. Right. So like, you know, <laughs> in, in the movies, everything is smooth. Well, uh, you know, the dude, uh, sitting right next to me, my driver, he goes to follow me, but his, his gear gets caught in like the Humvee, uh, like you know, the stick shift, oh, like yeah, the shift, yeah. The shifter on the, you know, up on the pan, on the uh, steering wheel gets caught on that. He can't get out. So he just closes the door and hunkers down. <laughs> he, he's literally so gummed up in the, in the goddamn seat that he, he can't get out. Um, you know, another guy trips, like it was a shit show. Look, it was like comical, but anyway, they all come up to me afterwards and they're like, you know, hey, sir, that was pretty badass. And I was like, ah, you know, I was just, and then right at, like, right when I was absorbing my, like, millisecond of, like, I did a good job, they start just diving. Like, they all just start diving onto the ground, rolling, and then getting back up. Like, and they did this the entire deployment. Like, they'd walk into a room, do a dive rollout, and then pop up in front of me and salute, you know, just to be assholes and stuff. But, like, yeah. But, but that's what it is. It's like, all right, we just had this situation where we, you know, we all got shot at for the first time. Let's make fun of the lieutenant because, you know, I mean, admittedly, <laughs> I don't know why I dove out of it. I have no idea. 
like that. What there's no there's no TTP for dive <laughs> out of the Humvee. That's just what like I don't know. Fucking instinct took over, and that's what I did. So you know, well, the fact that that you know anybody, especially that veterans are pretty good at at doing this. Looking back at those uh, different you know, scenarios and, and make what they make fun of themselves too. Right. So and a lot of them do and they make fun of each other, but to your point, um, at the drop of a hat, everybody's got each other's back and that's not some, it's not exclusive to the military, but it's a not as common in the civilian world. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's, a I, I could go on and on about veterans, right. So cause I'm a veteran as well. And, uh, you know, closing out this book here, um, Scars and Stripes. Yep. Now, this could probably be almost an entire another episode of a podcast, but it's something that I, I want to talk to you about. And that is, uh, I believe the last chapter was talking about coming out of Afghanistan, which we just passed, I believe, the two-year anniversary. Is that correct? We did. So... And I think this goes very high on my list of ways to, you know, for my fourth R, what we talked about earlier, you know, reinvesting into the community um, and whether, whether it's the save our allies or any of the other things you're doing with like the Legion or all these different fundraising things that you do. I do want to touch on that one though, because like that is, that's gotta be almost at the pinnacle of, of selfless service. You're you and others. You're you're not on army time. You're not on military time. You're just simply doing what's right. So can you briefly walk me through what your thought process was leading up to uh, to going over there? Yeah. So, um, you know, my friend Sarah Berardo, I, I think very highly of Sarah, and I don't, I don't think too highly of too many people, but she, she's pretty high on the list. She has a saying that, you know, uh, if you can help somebody, you need to. And, uh, you know, I've basically lived that my whole life. Um, and I, you know, I, I think it comes from the way I was raised, you know, Italian family, you know, my parents are very, very good people. Um, and, you know, they've, you know, throughout my life, they've always done a lot for others. And so, you know, for me, it was, it was two things. My first reaction is when Sarah called me and said, you know, will you go to Afghanistan is I thought she was joking because, you know, I am, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm 46 right now. At the time I was 44. I've been out of the military for years and I was only kind of cool when I was in, I was, you know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, super elite Delta SEAL sniper operator, badass, you know, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm an infantry guy. And, yeah. um, you know, so I first, I thought she was joking. And, and then, you know, I said, you know, our, I said, you know, Sarah, like you, should, I know like a, a thousand, you know, badass dudes that are still in peak physical fitness and, you know, are, are, you know, can pull triggers, you know, in a way that I never will be able to. And she, she was like, listen, I, I don't need, and we don't need a bunch of guys looking for a fight. We need people that want to help and save people. And you, you know, you always stay calm and you don't, 
you know, you don't let emotion rule you. And it's like, I really need your help. And I, I said, all right, well, let me ask my wife and, um, my, my wife, Susie, she's English and, uh, she has a very matter of fact way of delivering things. And so I, you know, I, I expect her to laugh at me. Like, there's no way that you're leaving, you know, our six kids and me, you know, to go do this. And, um, and instead she says, what's happening in Afghanistan is the worst thing I've ever seen. You can help. Tim can help. And there's nothing I can do about it. So you need to go. And so like I joked about it, you know, in the moment I was like, man, I didn't realize you wanted me to die. And, you know, <laughs> he, uh, you know, she got kind of pissed at me, but, uh, so, um, so, you know, with her blessing, I, uh, I got on a plane, Tim and I got on a plane 24 hours later and, uh, and flew to Abu Dhabi and then to Afghanistan. And then of that, you know, there was two, there was two words that you just said, and that was calm and able, you know, you're, you weren't getting over emotional and that's why, uh, why Sarah wanted you to go. Now, again, I'm referencing doing something like this, being at the pinnacle of giving back to a community and helping others. But on the, on the micro level, right, speaking to, to the average, and I know you, you refer to yourself as an average Joe, just an average guy, but somebody who's not in the limelight, not on the TV screens, not directing movies and writing books that wants to give back, like, how would you persuade them to, uh, to help their, their communities? Yeah. I mean, so I'm a big believer that your life, your life gets better and your country gets better and everything gets better when you invest in your community. So, so people have this belief, you know, oh, you know, you're an influencer or you're, you know, like you look at somebody, you know, you look at somebody that has that, you know, monster influence, right? Like a, like a Jake Paul, right? Huge influence, right? He, you know, there aren't many influencers you would consider bigger than like Jake Paul, right? Sure. How many lives does he affect in a meaningful way? I'm not saying zero, it, it's some, but, you know, the fact that everybody knows him, watches him, like it's entertainment and he can probably, not probably, he can sell a lot of stuff, but how many lives is he making better? It's very hard to make people's lives better at a macro level outside of through like books. You know, I think, I think a book, you know, if you can get people to read a book that is meaningful and has life lessons, I think that helps a lot. But for the most part, it's very hard to macro improve the lives of other humans. It takes an investment of personal time. And so, you know, I coach wrestling, you know, my wife coaches, coaches wrestling and jujitsu and uh, you know, we, we volunteer time to help small businesses and we're part of the chamber of commerce. And, you know, um, you know, we, our community by helping, you know, you teach a kid how to be, how to be tough, how to work for a goal to, to be, um, to have character and victory and defeat. Um, you know, 
that things aren't always going to go your way and you have to keep moving like that changes a kid's life that makes that takes uh, an average person and turns them into a winner um that shows a kid that maybe doesn't have the best situation at home that somebody cares about him. you know you help a, a small business you know that, that doesn't know anything about marketing and you you take them from making a couple grand a month to 10 grand a month you know, by spending an hour with them, you know, every couple of weeks, you know, that changes a person's life. They then go and, and hire other veterans um, and they help their community and they inspire others. And, you know, some of these guys that, that I've mentored a little bit, you know, have, have far surpassed anything I've done in my life. And that's a good thing. Um, and, you know, that is like that investment is possible for anyone you know if you are you know if you weld and you teach a kid your craft or you encourage somebody or you help a new guy you know get better like you're investing you know if you're a mechanic and and you volunteer a little time to you know with high school shop or uh you know like there's so many things that you can do whatever your skill is and yeah, and and there's like, I would I would say maybe with a young a younger generation, people younger than myself, uh, and I'm I'm 34, but my my two cents on it, right, is like, no one, probably not enough people, not not many people, when they when they seek out to help others, whether it's starting a business and giving back, or nonprofit work, or just volunteering or whatever, um, not everybody is going to skyrocket up into the, you know, stratosphere of like fame and be in the limelight. That's right. and, and, and if that's the intent, if that's your intent, when you set out to do this, then your, your heart's probably not in the right spot. Um, maybe you should try pursuing something else, but there's so many people out there that are, you know, and, and I've, I've gathered it over the last few years of work. Um, farmers, who volunteer their time to be on the local farm bureau board. Mm -hmm. um, there's again, there's people coaching. My kids play sports. Um, I, I helped coach for one year, like didn't cost me a dime, just cost me some time. Yep. Not a big deal. Um, and there's little things like that, uh, that people can do that just, I mean, if you give back to the community and I'm speaking for myself here, if I give back to the community, any way possible. I feel good about it. I can share that experience with my kids. They feel good about it. And it helps us build relationships, you know, well, yeah, inside the household and, and then outside the house. Yeah. And not only that, but your kids see that this is what a man is supposed to do. This is what an adult is supposed to do. You know? Yeah. Cause I know my, my kids when we're, they're guilty of it. They'll sit on the, on the tablet. Right. And they'll, they'll watch the, the YouTube influencers. Sure. Um, and it's like, oh, you know, they're Mr. Beast is doing this and, you know, whoever's doing that. And I'm like, yeah, yeah man, but like, you know what? That's a, that's that's cool. a great that's example, cool. though, because Mr. Beast tells he actually puts out free content explaining to everybody exactly how he is successful. Like he tells people how to be a successful influencer and, and he doesn't charge for it. And he's like he wants to help other people. And it's but what the reality is, is like all things, it's extremely hard work. Yeah, it's extremely hard and, and, and not everybody's going to be 
you know, a, a Mr. Beast or, or Nick or Tim or, or any, you know, anybody that's in the limelight, but that doesn't change the fact that you're helping someone else. And I think that that's the point I'm trying to drive across here. Um, anybody can do it. Yeah. Anybody can do it. And that's one of the things that really, you know, talking to you, talking to the other people I bring on the podcast um, motivates me to share, share the stories that people come from all different backgrounds. They're not letting whatever life has dealt them, hold them back uh, more often than not. They're using it as, as fuel um, to just do better and do better for their community, do better for their family. So that's the, uh, that's the gist of it. That's kind of where I'm at with the podcast and my outlook on life. And I, I know you have a very similar one. Um, so scars and stripes, that's the, uh, the most recent book. What do you got coming out next? I know you, you talked about some stuff with diesel Jack, maybe some shows. Yeah. Yeah. So I've got a, I, I can't, I can't quite announce it just yet, but I have a, a comedic television series that we're going to announce shortly. Uh, it's, uh, you know, we're, we're bringing, we're bringing a lot of the old band back together for, for some cameos as well as some, some professional actors. And um, we'll be filming that in the December time frame, And then I've got, I'm going to have my first dramatic film uh, that we will be, you know, we will be probably filming at the end of, of 2024. Um, so I've got those two things. And then I am meeting on Wednesday uh, to discuss writing uh, a, another book uh, with another guy that is a, an absolutely interesting character. I don't, again, I don't want to, I don't want to give, I can't give anything up until everything is kind of locked down. Um, but you know, a TV series, a movie, um, you know, I, I I'm, uh, I have been approached to write a script about, you know, the Afghanistan, uh, mission, you know, that's kind of up in the air and, uh, and another book. So, I got a lot, I got a lot going on. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I, like I said, you know, I'm happiest when I'm telling stories. Um, there's a lot of great stories out there and, you know, a lot of people, when they try to write their own story, they, they end up writing what they think people want to hear instead of you know, being themselves. And I think that's one of the things that I, that I can help, uh, help people do is, is because I can come at it objectively and I can look at who they are and, and what I know of them. It's easier to, um, to be more truthful in the writing and people react best to truthful writing. So, you know, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I won't pretend that we're like besties or anything, but I, I've known Tucker Max for years. And, you know, he he went through a phase of his life where, you know, if you got him drunk, he was essentially one of the worst people on planet Earth. And he wrote these books, you know, I hope they serve beer in hell and assholes finish first. That were, yeah. that were like, I mean, just enormous bestsellers. And you know, I read them and it, it wasn't like, I wasn't attracted to that lifestyle. Like I, I've never been a guy that treated women that way. I don't, in, like, it's not, 
it would make me physically uncomfortable to to be that way towards women. Um, but I read them because I absolutely believed everything he put in there because he didn't pull punches even when it made him look like shit. And uh, I, what I learned from reading his books is that when you read a book where people are trying to polish their image and pretend that they were actually better, cooler, tougher, et cetera, than they really were, you know it, you know, even if you don't, even if you're not vocalizing this book is bullshit, you kind of know, and it, the book becomes boring and it, it, it's like you're getting a curated story. And the first thing that Tim said to me is, I want to make sure that people know I was a piece of shit when I was a piece of shit. And yeah, and that's, that's something in the beginning of this book, you know, I, I want to keep you on here too long, but uh, when I started reading this book, I, I had planned on doing uh, some kind of like live reviews on Instagram as I went through the book. And I have a couple, couple of videos on Instagram where I, I briefly talk about the first few chapters and I was like, I don't know if I was expecting polished and, and shiny and cool. Like, you know, this is real SF like, uh, and then I was reading it and I'm like, okay, this chapter, he talks about all the things he fucked up. And then this next chapter, he talks about all the things he fucked up. <laughs> and, and then he talks about, you know, all these other things that didn't go right or the way he wanted it. And then he, you know, finds himself out in the fucking ocean somewhere. And, uh, I was like, okay, there's a, there's a lot of humility and humbleness to it. And I, I think you did a great job of portraying that um, in this book. I appreciate that. I appreciate yes, that. Yes, sir. He, you know, he, he expended a lot of emotional energy getting those stories out. And, you know, I took the job of making sure that I represented that very seriously. And, and it seems like, you know, the world, uh, has it has embraced the book and and I think he absolutely deserves that. So I was I was happy to happy to see it do so well. Yeah, it, it, I'm I'm glad I picked it. You know, there's a handful of books. Actually, just kind of a one last thing. My wife, she's like, hey, send me a, a list of books that you want from the uh, library because she's like at the library all the time. And this was one of them. And she goes, well, they don't have it. And I was like, okay, well, you know, grab one of the other ones, which she did. But then she went and bought this one. So she got on online and bought it and it showed up in the mail one day and I'm like, Oh shit. <laughs> like sweet. This book is available now. It's all of a sudden, but um, you know, Nick, I really appreciate doing the podcast. Uh, I mean, do you have any, any final thoughts, anything you want to share before we part ways? No, I, you know, I was just expecting to talk about running, you know, <laughs> you know what the, the other few hours we, uh, we can go to them. We're 84 minutes deep. <laughs> But, you know, it's with the, with the four different R's, the, the reading, running relationships and reinvesting. Um, again, those are four little tools that that keep me sane. Um, and I know they're, they're working for other people as well, whether it's writing or reading. Um, you know, people like to work out. I've had gym owners and stuff on this podcast and I got some other fitness people lined up as well, talking about the uh, correlation between mental health and fitness and how it, it helps them. And I can tell my own personal story on that some other time, but uh, yeah, man, I, I appreciate you coming on here. Um, 
definitely. It's my pleasure. Right. I'll, I'll just leave with, I'll leave with one parting thought, you know, specifically for the veteran community. You know, a, a thing that I, that I see a lot, especially on social media, is um, the pecking order. You know, people like to talk down to like, you know, it's like, oh, you know, you were a ranger, but not SF. Oh, you were airborne, but not a ranger. Oh, you were uh, the wrong kind of ranger. Oh, you were, uh, you were cav. Oh, you were, you know, you were a pogue. Oh, you were, and, and listen, I, like, I am 100% on board with like friendly shit talking. Um, but I will tell you this, right? You know, and I've said this many times, my mentor, the people that actually looked out for me, that really went to bat for me in life are two veterans that never deployed. And they had my back. And they, like one of these guys, I talk about him a lot, Mark Gross from Oak Grove Technology. That dude had my back when I was at my lowest point in life. And, and without a little love from him, I probably... Um, I probably would have had a much harder time, you know, or, or potentially even failed in my first endeavor. And the veteran population is tiny, right? In World War II, 11.2% of all, of all Americans served. You know, not necessarily deployed overseas, but served. In Vietnam, 4.3% served. Over the 20 years, the 20 years of war that we just had, we still don't get up to 1%. You know, six years ago, it was 0.45%, yeah. right? So when you talk about, like when you get out and you have to find your new tribe and your new purpose, and you, you want to live around who you once were, like, you know, you want to be like, oh, I'm not going to talk to Joe because Joe was a tab ranger. I'm not going to talk to Bob because he was a pogue. Or I'm not going to talk to Kathy because, you know, she was in supply or finance or whatever. And I'm a badass SF guy or whatever it is, you know, whatever it is. Or the other way, like, oh, he was a dumb infantry guy. And I was, you know, I was intelligence or whatever. You're, you are, you're not just hurting other people, you're hurting yourself. With the, the second you leave the military, I strongly encourage you to embrace the broader veteran community, like Air Force, Navy, Army, like whatever, whatever they serve, because you have infinitely more in common than you have with people that have never put the uniform on, regardless of whether they were doing, you know, badass CAG shit or they were doing supply shit. Yeah. And for, forget about being a good person, which I think is, is critical, but forget about that for a sec. Selfishly, you should want to significantly expand your network and not diminish it, you know? So like, I have a lot of people that come to me for advice, for help, whatever. Um, 
people that are that have a little humility and that are a little bit you know more positive about the greater veter veteran community that are willing to give something themselves are the people I enjoy helping the most you know the people that think that they're God's gift to everything I'm less inclined to help you know it's it's exhausting and you know it typically comes from a place of not feeling comfortable in who you are or trying to define your future life based on your past life. And like one of the things that, you know, everybody is, look, when you're a badass, everybody knows you're a badass. You don't have to say it, you know, like you meet a guy that spent years in CAG, like you, it just emanates off of them. Like they, you get, like everybody understands who this person is. You don't have yeah. to say I'm a badass. And when you start, when you start doing that, you diminish your circle. So, you know, if you're going to put, I, I think a great endeavor for anybody getting out is the same thing that made you successful in the military, helping the, the man or woman to your left and right. Leave with the same mentality. How can I help other veterans or other civilians or other people in my community or, you know, without judgment, and your life will go better. So there's my parting thought. I, I think you have some great thoughts there, Nick. <laughs> and I, I know um, we could probably carry this conversation on all day long. I think there's a lot of overlap in uh, the, way our, the way our minds work and kind of where, where hearts are at, and whether it's doing it on the micro level or on the macro level, right? And, and just uh, kind of encouraging people to go after what they like and, and keep that sense of community. And if you're a veteran, keep giving back um, or get involved, you know, so you still have that, that sense of community because it's really important. But um, yeah, man, that, that's all I've got. Again, really appreciative of you uh, coming on the podcast and yeah, man, thanks a lot. Yeah. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. All right. I'm out, sir. All right, man. Talk to you later. Later. Bye.